Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. We're going to continue tonight and next Sunday and probably the following Sunday from the book of Jonah. We preach this morning from the first three verses dealing with Jonah and his call and his running away. Tonight I want to deal with the subject Jonah, the storm, or we might say the consequences of the run. What happened to him when he ran away? So back in the Old Testament to the book of Jonah. Comes right after Obadiah, then Jonah, then Micah. And if you can't figure those out, uh, you go ahead and look at the index because that's a hard one to find. It's just three pages long. A little short book. It's right before Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I just want you to know I can say the Old Testament books. Jonah chapter 1 at verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. And there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten it off them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. He lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. They said, every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? He said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which has made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Let us unite together in prayer. Lord, as we look now into your word, to the experience of Jonah, the storm that came upon him. May our hearts be of one, one accord. We desire to learn from the experiences of Jonah that we might be more like you would have us be in our daily walk. Bless us in our midst, and if there's any disturbed hearts, any turmoils in the soul of any person this evening, we pray that you would speak especially to those hearts there might be peace and calmness as we all leave this service tonight, for in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now this morning we set the stage for what I want to speak throughout this month, dealing with Jonah and his experience. I've preached from Jonah on previous occasions, 
but the messages that I'm going to be delivering on this series is, is different. You've heard sermons from Jonah all your life, I suppose. I don't know if you have heard in the same text that I'm going to deliver this evening or not. Jonah has run from God, as we explained this morning. And when he ran, he had the convenience that the devil provided of finding a ship that was going all the way across the Mediterranean Sea from one end to the other, more than 3,000 miles away, thinking that he could escape the presence of God. He thought if he was not near Nineveh, then God couldn't lay upon him to go to Nineveh and preach. If he was somewhere else. The same theory that we use in feeling that we can escape the presence of God by going somewhere else. Getting away from his church, getting away from where we have heard his call, and we can easily say no, and we can excuse ourselves in not doing what God wants us to do because it's not now convenient. We have gone somewhere else where we cannot conveniently get back. The Lord doesn't look at it in those terms. The Lord looks at it in the terminology that I have given you a call, I have told you what I want done, and I expect you to accomplish that. And when we refuse to do what the Lord wants us to do, we have come to the point of sinning. We don't have to commit immorality or drunkenness or take drugs to sin. We don't have to lie and cheat to sin. All we have to do is to refuse to do what God wants us to do, and we have sinned. And this is where we find Jonah. Now, God does not take lightly his people sinning. And he usually sends a storm to bring us back to reality. And this is what he did in the life of Jonah. Jonah got on ship. He went on board, paid the price. And here he is now on board the ship, and a storm comes up in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Whenever we sin, we can be assured that we're going to be in for a stormy life. There's going to be conflict and distress and disturbances that will face us like we have never faced before because God is trying to bring us back to a proper response to what he wants out of us. All of us have gone through the personal experiences of having those storms face us and we're tore up. We literally are torn to bits. We don't know which way to go, and we search for all kinds of reasons and excuses as to why we ought not do what the Lord wants us to do. But be absolutely sure that every Christian understands that when we sin, we have a storm. That happens in the person's life. It happens in family life. Whenever there is sin in the family, there's going to be storms in the family. There are going to be difficulties when husbands and wives are at each other's throat and, and parents and children do not get along. And it all comes back to the basic reason for all of it, and that is that God's will has not been obeyed in the family. If you have not experienced it, I would be very surprised. You consider the difficulties that you have had, you husbands and wives, uh, you parents and children, or any other combination, and if you will be honest with yourself and rationally evaluate the circumstances surrounding 
your experience, somebody has been involved in disobeying God. And that has brought the turmoil. It happens in the church. There cannot be a church turmoil without sin causing it. When there is a difficulty, a distress, a disturbance, bad feelings, whatever might come, at the root of all of those difficulties is the fact that somebody has disobeyed God. Somebody has sinned. All right. Here they are out in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea, and a tremendous storm comes up. Now we know that God is in control of this old world, and he can uh, brew up a storm just by his spoken word. And that's exactly what he does in this case. He brings a storm to bear upon that little old wooden vessel floating around out there in the Mediterranean Sea. Jesus was on a ship one time when there was a storm, you recall, and his, his apostles tried and tried to row that thing into shore to escape the wrath of the storm and couldn't do it, and Jesus was down in the hold of the ship fast asleep, and they finally woke him up and said, Master, do you not care that we perish? And there is a hymn that has been set to music, uh, Master, the tempest is raging. Carest thou not that we perish, and on and on it goes. And Jesus comes on board and simply says in a calm voice to this raging sea, Be still. And it quits. God wants to stop our storms in our lives. And he will come on board our ship and say to the storms that are around us, peace be still, as he did to that one that I have just referred to, when we bring ourselves into his will. But as long as we are determined to stay out of his will, we're going to discover that the storm will continue, and he won't speak the words, peace be still, until those parties involved decide that they're going to listen to what God has to say. Here is a fugitive from God. And he encounters a storm. Any fugitive from God will encounter a storm in his life. It will happen. Now let's look at the storm a little bit. I want to look at it in, in uh, different, different aspects. First of all, look at the storm as it affected the ship. And think of this ship as as your ship, your life, where you are, your environment, uh, where you live, your family, uh, your, your work life, or whatever might, you might call your ship. This is where you are. And the storm was about to break that ship open. God is shaking our ship. Let me illustrate it by an experience I had one time when I was a teenager in high school and during a Christmas vacation week, my shop teacher allowed me to go to the shop at school because I had a project I was working on of building a farm wagon. I cut down an old automobile that today I'd give my eye teeth to have back and wish I hadn't cut it down. It'd be worth a mint. But it wasn't worth much then. It was a 32 model Chevrolet. And I took a chisel and a hammer and cut the body off of it and took the chassis and went to school with it and I made a farm wagon except I did not use the right welding rods in, in welding the thing together. And my shop teacher came in. He stopped. 
I was just finishing it up. I'm so proud of what I'd done. I, boy, I'd really done a good job. He never said a word to me. He took a piece of pipe off the floor, and he went over to my farm wagon, and he started beating on it. And when he was done, it was laying in a pile on the floor. And he walked away. Never said one word to me. He liked to kill my soul. There was my wagon. Torn to bits by that stormy teacher who took a piece of pipe and beat it to pieces. And after I got my composure, I realized that he had taught me a valuable lesson. I had not put into my project the right materials, and it would not withstand the trials that I was going to put it to. And I had to start all over. Our lives are like that when God comes along and he takes something and he beats our ship, our farm wagon, our little world, and he shows us that what we have put into it isn't right because we haven't followed his directions as I had not followed my teacher's direction. You see, he told me that there's one kind of rod to use in one case, one kind of another. See, I knew better any kind of a rod to do it, and I proved it to him. I had it all put together, except it couldn't stand the pressure. Jesus gave us a story about a person who was building a house. One man built his on a solid foundation, but another man built his house on the sands. And when the storms came and began to beat, only the house that had a solid foundation could withstand that storm. When the winds blew and the rains came, the house that was built on a good foundation stood, but one that was built on the sand was washed away and destroyed, and that's the illustration of our life. We've got to have a foundation based upon our obedience to God if we expect our lives and our families and our church and our community to stand the storms that come. But listen, with Jesus Christ on board and our proper obedience to God, we will stand and we will not falter. Regardless of how the storms might come. But look at the sailors. They were scared to death. So afraid were they that they began to pray. That's usually when people start praying is when they get scared. What's the first thing that comes off a person's lips? when he is literally scared to death. It's usually, oh Lord. Now why is that? That's a casual uh, statement or phrase that's, uh, usually, but it points out to the fact that when we get to the place that we are in absolute loss for control, we want to call on somebody who's got more power than we do, and that we know is nobody but God himself. And so we start calling. And that's what these sailors did. They started calling the best they knew how. It was on pagan gods, but that's all they knew. They were afraid. The thing that I have, I think, discovered over the years, that more people are brought to the Lord Jesus Christ because they are afraid than anything else. And that's a good prompter. A person is afraid to die, and so he calls on the Lord. A person is afraid for an operation, and so he calls on the Lord. A person is afraid that he's not going to be able to get out of the circumstances that he's in, and he calls on the Lord. 
I know that there's many a man when they, and he goes to prison, calls on the Lord, hoping that the Lord will get him out of the circumstances that he now finds himself in. When people are afraid, they call on God. I want to go to Matthew for just a moment, chapter 10, just one verse. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. But it says something very important. It says, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Let me reread it. Change the wording just a little bit. It's talking about actually being afraid. It tells us to be afraid. But what does it say? Do not be afraid of the devil who can kill your body. But after that has nothing more that he can do. But be afraid of God who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. That's what that verse is saying. We ought to be afraid of God. These sailors certainly ought to have been afraid of God. And people in today's world need to be afraid of God. It's a fearful thing, the scripture says, to fall into the hands of an angry God. The Lord does not take sinning lightly. And he is going to come down upon people who are sinners, you and me and everybody around us, with his stormy wrath when we are are disobedient to what he wants from us. The sailors then began to pray. They prayed earnestly, but they didn't pray to God. They prayed to an idol. The scripture tells us that during the tribulation, which is shortly to come and may be in the lives of many of us, that the people who are left in this world after the church is taken out, after all the saved people are resurrected from the graves and, and taken forth after the church is raptured, that there's going to be a time when people will pray that they die, and they can't. And the scripture says they're going to pray for the rocks and the mountains to hide them. But it won't happen. Someone has written a book that I'm trying to get a hold of, and I haven't succeeded yet. It's called 88 Reasons why the rapture will take place in 88. This man in the book, I have been told, and I have not read it yet, gives, uh, he is a nuclear scientist with one of the space programs, he's not a preacher, gives 88 reasons why he believes that the church will be raptured this year. Matter of fact, he points it to a three-day period in September. He says in the book, I've been told, and here's where I think he goes a bit astray, that the church will be raptured between September the 11th and the 13th. It's not very far from now. And I said to the person that I was talking about this book, who had read the book, that if the man is right... It won't make any difference because I'm not going to be here to worry about it. If he's wrong, it really won't make any difference except he has been perhaps led astray in trying to interpret God's calendar, which we cannot do. 
because there have been many people who have said the Lord is, is here, is going to return at a given time and doesn't do it. He points out, however, that in the book that the Lord did not say that we couldn't pin it down pretty close. He just said we wouldn't know the day and the hour. Now, the day and the hour, if you interpret it literally, would mean we don't know whether it's going to be Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, and we don't know if it's going to be 1 o'clock or 12 o'clock or whatever hour it might be. He says that's all the Scripture's saying, that everything else we ought to be able to determine. And, of course, the Lord told us when we see the budding of the fig tree, know that the time is near. And certainly we're seeing the budding of the fig tree. Listen. We are coming to a point that this world cannot stand much longer. It has nearly reached self-destruction. We're going to be destroyed with AIDS, if nothing else, if there is not something found to, to keep it, uh, to, uh, to kill it. Our medical people are beginning to tell us that it's going to affect all of us in a short while, not that we have participated in illicit sex in order to obtain it, but that it is going to spread over. It started out in the homosexual community. It has already spread to the heterosexual community, to normal people. It's there now, and it's going to grow and grow and grow. We're going to destroy ourselves with AIDS, if for no other reason, in a few years. Uh, it's, it's growing by astronomical proportions. This world cannot tolerate itself much longer. We're going to self-destruct. But we know that the Lord is going to come before four final seven years of destruction takes place. These men prayed, but they were praying to the wrong God. And the scripture says concerning the time of the tribulation that they'll pray then too. But their prayers are too late, the scripture says. Their prayers are too late. So, what do they do next? Well, they start casting overboard all of the things that they had obtained. Man takes uh, great pride in what he owns. And I suppose we ought to do that to a certain degree. However little or however great it might be, it's still ours and we want to protect it and we want to hold on to it. It's very difficult to see things lost. And I, I saw in the flood of 85 hundreds of people who lost everything they owned to the flood and others. And I experienced that. We experienced it one time with fire. It's difficult to see those things go. But when it comes to the point of deciding, are you going to get rid of what you own or your life? your life suddenly becomes valuable and possessions can be thrown overboard. And that's what they began to do. In order to save their life, they were willing to throw overboard the cargo in order they might live. The scripture asked the question in Matthew 16, 26, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And when the day comes before the judgment and man stands there, he would be willing to give anything that he ever owned the whole world, if he could possess it, in order that he might see his soul saved. But his prayer at that point is going to be too late. The great gamble that people are taking today is one thing. They're going to live forever. Do you know that lost don't believe they're going to die? They don't believe that. They somehow seem to think that life never ends. That there is no death. 
And if they thought there were really going to be death, would they not in any kind of rational decisions make plans for one's spiritual existence as he makes plans for retirement or even for his own physical death? Man will make those plans, but somehow or other, he seems to think that there is no need to make plans for his soul. Scripture asks the question, what shall it profit a man if he would gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And of course, the obvious answer is it profits him nothing. Well, let's go back to Jonah a moment. Where's he? The scripture says he went down into the bottom of the ship and went to sleep. Now, let's take a look at this thing of his sleeping in two different directions. Number one, let's look at the positive side. The good thing about it, Jonah was able, in the middle of a storm, to go to sleep. Some of you can't sleep in storms. Some of you can sleep like a baby in a storm. Jesus slept in a storm didn't bother him a bit that the roof was coming off the ship. Jonah apparently didn't mind the fact that there was a storm. Why? Because he already knew that his soul was secure in Jesus. He was safe. We teach our children to pray the prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I remember teaching that to my kids. But I can remember as a kid, there was a period of time that I laid awake at night fighting going to sleep because I was afraid to go to sleep for fear that I might not wake up in this life. And as I think back on it, the only thing that I can now reason is that I must have been afraid of my spiritual destiny. And for the person who is not saved, I think it would be fearful to sleep or fear that one might die in his sleep. But Jonah didn't mind. Jesus didn't object to sleeping in the midst of storm because both of them knew that they were safe. And in this aspect, it ought to be good that we can sleep peacefully in times of storm, not just physical storms of the wind and the rain, but all the things that come upon us. I remember reading of, of one of the people during the Second World War uh, who was a missionary, and their ship was torpedoed, and the German ship picked them up, and there was a great number of missionaries on board, and they had a restless night. But one of those men, whose name I now have forgotten, said that he finally prayed, Lord, there's no use both of us staying awake, and so if you'll stay awake, I'll thank you for some sleep. And with that, he went to sleep, because he knew the Lord was in control. But there's a negative side. Here is a ship full of people, and evidently Jonah is the only saved man on board, but he had no interest in the salvation of the people that were with him. A ship full of people who need to be saved, and Jonah is asleep. And this somewhat illustrates the church. Look at the small numbers of people that we really win to the Lord in a year's time. In, in West Virginia, the numbers of people that are baptized a year is very, very small. As I told you, we're well, the third largest church, 
in numbers of baptisms in West Virginia. And that ought to be an indictment against Baptist churches in West Virginia that the little church that we are baptized more people than, than 500 and some other churches of our own denomination. That is a literal shame. And when I go down through the list and see church after church after church that do not report a single baptism in a whole year's time, what's that church doing? And it's being repeated over and over. We're a society satisfied to sleep. And the lost are going to hell. Paul said in Romans 13, 11, it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than we first believed. Yes, it's high time that we wake up. There's an urgency. There's an emergency going on. People are lost. Well, the captain of the ship finally comes down and wakes Jonah and gets him awake and asks him to call on his God. Asks him to. And he says, perhaps your God can help. I want to ask you something. Does the God you serve have any interest in lost souls? Can your God help? My God can. My God is interested. But the thing that I see that my God says in his word is that he wants his children, you and me, to go out seeking for the lost in order that they might be saved. My God loved this world enough that he died on the cross in the person of his son, that every lost soul in this community would be saved. And he doesn't ask anything in return except the person believe that he's the son of God and accept his death for the pardon of their own sin. The sleeper had to be awakened to give the message of salvation. He said that it was his fault that this storm had come. Next week we're going to talk about the consequences of that storm and what happened to Jonah in it. But Jonah was at fault. Jonah brought the storm. I pray that you and I will not bring storms. That we'll bring the gospel to the people of this community. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.